said this before, I always like the fact that I'm given guidance as to what to speak about when I come to grace. You're in a series at the moment of encounters with Jesus. What a wonderful, wonderful series that that is. You know, the woman at the well, Martha and Mary grieving for their brother, and so the list goes on the woman of doubtful reputation who washed the feet of Jesus with tears and spread that perfume over his head and was really rebuked by the disciples, you'll remember. Poor Bartimaeus, those on the road to um, Emmaus, the grieving widow of Nain, Nicodemus, what a list. But the one that I have been allowed to take is the very last of the encounters that Jesus had while he was on earth just before his death, the one that Jake read about and that our friends demonstrated dramatically in their piece there just before I got up. Let's see what we can learn together from this story. I have been reading it over and over again. I've been closing my eyes and trying to picture it. And I, 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 I hope that you'll be moved, not by any attempt to be dramatic from the pulpit, but by the story itself. The procurator, Pilate, his final insult to Jesus was to sentence him to death in the company of two criminals. The prophet Isaiah had written that it would be so. He will be numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah had written hundreds of years before, and here it was coming to pass. And in spite of Pilate's previous encounter with Jesus, in spite of the comments that his wife had made to him because her conscience troubled her greatly in a dream. She knew this. There's something wrong about this, Pilate. There's something right about this man. But in spite of it all, Pilate pled to the crowd and to his Roman superiors and poured further contempt on Jesus. This is what I think of your king of the Jews. You remember he even put the notice on the cross above Christ. This is the king of the Jews. But it was all sarcasm. Perhaps there was a hint at the back of Pilate's mind that there, there was some truth in this. There's evidence for that. But nevertheless, here's what I think of your king of the Jews. I'm going to crucify him between two criminals. What an insult. What, a, what an awful insult to the Son of God. And these two men were led out with Jesus for the journey to the place of execution. And we can be sure that as they went there, their primary thoughts were on the awful death that was immediately in front of them. Crucifixion was for the, the worst offenders. These men were probably <coughs> first century terrorists. 
They loathed Rome. They deeply resented the occupation of their homeland by the Roman authorities, the troops. But their rebellion was going nowhere. The grip of Rome was so strong throughout the empire, and particularly here in Judea. And they had turned to violent robbery. And now they're at the end of the road. It was all over. There was nothing more. Only this torturous death. The records say, and Jake read it, and the drama group brought it out, the records say that they poured scorn on Jesus. Both of them initially. Because we've records in more than the one reading in Luke. Both of them poured scorn on Jesus and then one of them continued to do so even as they were crucified. But what, what was it that brought the change in one of those two men? What was it that, that brought about the transformation? At first, Jesus was to them both a condemned criminal heading for the same awful death, weak, pathetic, hopeless, helpless, but he's not cursing his fate. He, 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 he's not cursing the heartless soldiers who were tormenting him, who were treating him with brutal indifference. They were used to this. Crucifixion was a daily sight in Judea and in many other parts of the empire. And they were indifferent to the suffering as they drove great six-inch wrought iron nails through flesh and splintering bone. It was horrendous. But he didn't pour out venom on those who were crucified. And the other two are watching on and, I mean, what's this? Can you imagine the two on the outer cross as they observe what's happening on the center cross? He's praying. He's actually praying. And what's he saying? Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. But the mocking still went on among the crowd. The Jewish leaders, they, they were sneering at him. You saved others, now save yourself. Can you picture the scene? And then the soldiers, they referred to the sign that was above Jesus, that Pilate had ordered to be there. And they joined the mockers. This is the king of the Jews and said, but the, the soldiers sneered at him and as Jake read, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Remember, it's, it's just jeering. It's just mockery. Did the other criminal, the one that we're focusing on, did he, as he listened to that, somehow get a glimmer of hope. I, I, I wonder, did he? 
Aren't you the Christ, he said? Save yourself and us. Save yourself and us. But from the other cross comes the rebuke. And, and you know, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? We are under the same sentence, but we deserve it. This man has done nothing wrong. Oh, there is so much in that. Where did that come from? Here is wisdom and faith and discernment and repentance and humility all manifested in one amazing statement. Let me read it again. Don't you fear God? since we are under the same sentence, but we deserve it, this man has done nothing wrong. What an amazing sentence. God the Holy Spirit moving in a broken man in the agonies of death and bringing him from darkness to light, from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God with his vision blurred with blood and with the cheap wine mingled with gall, he saw what I hope you see. I know many of you have. But this man on that cross dying with Jesus saw what many have gone into a lost eternity without ever seeing. He saw this is the Christ. It dawned on him. What was said in mockery was reaffirmed by God the Holy Spirit and he saw him. He saw who it really was. You know, here is a man who is witnessing, and I know I've said this before in the past, but I want to say it again, he was witnessing the very watershed of history. He was placed right at the very front row, albeit in agony, to witness what was the most momentous event in the history of mankind. Do you know why I can say that? Because no one, no one will stand before God forgiven on any other basis than the finished work of Christ on that cross. No one. Oh, you may say, what about those who died? The whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament was looking forward to that. It was all representative. It was all symbolic. And in fact, John the baptizer saw it. Do you remember when Jesus came down for baptism? He said, ah, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, all that the sacrificial system has been pointing to it's happening in him, and this thief is witnessing it. Everything before looked forward to this event, and everything after, and we look back to it with clarity now, with historic clarity, but no one either before or after is saved on any other basis but the finished work of Jesus on that cross, and this man is seeing it for himself. When was I saved? At that moment when Jesus said, it is finished. That 
I was saved. Oh, it, it became effective in oh, 1958 or thereabouts in the Wellington Hall in Belfast. But that's when it really happened. And if you're saved this morning, and I hope you are, and I mean by that, you know, I have a young Chinese girl at the moment that I was witnessing to last Thursday night in the Bible class. And she said, I'm a follower of Jesus. I, I want to be sure I'm saved. And we were able to talk about it together and talk about the cross. But, you know, that's when it really happened. That's when the, the, the die was struck. That's when the moment occurred. That's when God was able to declare saved and forgiven and clothed in the righteousness of Christ all who before and after looked to that cross. It's the watershed of history. It's finished, said Jesus. Now, this dying thief was there to witness it all. What is more, his eyes were opened. He saw the significance of what he was observing. He'd grown up learning about Messiah as a Jewish boy. Probably he had distorted views of an extreme nationalist with military prowess who would lead an insurrection against the Roman authorities. But on the cross, his eyes were open. He began to see the true nature of the Christ. This is the one he really... He's dying. He's in agony. His mind is confused. But he knows this is the one. From a historic perspective, he is now getting it clarified. Never knew it would be like this. But he's the one. I've listened to him. Father, forgive him. I've watched the way he has faced death. And so this dying thief turns round to the one who is dying beside him. And he says, and you know he uses the intimate term, Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. A little over an hour ago, this poor wretch had left Pilate's court to face a terrible, gruesome death just a little over an hour before. The tide of his life was going out in utter misery and agony. And now the tide has turned. And now there is a glorious, eternal consequence developing. I have lying thinking about this in my bed this morning. I was thinking, I wonder did the crowd observe any difference? You see, the man still died. The soldiers still, according to the record, went and broke his legs. That was their custom just so there would be no recovery. From the externals, the process just proceeded, but the tide had turned. 
The tide had turned. Everything was different. You know, I've often walked along Runkery Beach at Port Ballantrae and said to Betty and others who were with us, has the tide turned? It's imperceptible. The only clue you get is when the little waves that are coming up in sand don't quite reach the mark of the previous ones. And you know the tide has turned, but you don't know when. You never notice the change. So it is. And the soul is transferred from darkness to light from the king. Has it happened with you? Has it happened? Have you had that transforming moment, that tide-turning experience? Lord, remember me when you come into your, your kingdom. And then Jesus turns. And you know, I, I think this man had it in mind that this would be a way in the future. That somehow the Messiah's kingdom would evolve way in the future sometime and, well, remember me when that happened. But look at the reply. I tell you the truth. Jesus. This day you will be with me in paradise. Today you will join me in heaven. Heaven, my home. Today you and I will be at home. Don't, by the way, start worrying about paradise and heaven. I assure you, and if you want to confirm this, go to First Corinthians 12, I think it is. They are the same. Paul makes that abundantly clear. Don't get into some confusing conversation about it. Heaven, paradise, the same thing. Today, you will join me in paradise. You will join me in heaven. You will join me in my eternal home. Now, the full universal manifestation of Christ's glorious kingdom has still to come. It has. But all who are following Jesus have citizenship now, and heaven is our home. Our spirits enter heaven's joy immediately. We leave these bodies. I was at a funeral with Betty of a, an old friend in Bangor, Bertie Firth, buried this week. When Bertie closed these physical eyes last weekend for the last time, his spirit went to be with Christ. Right away, he was in the presence of the Lord, absent from the body, present with the Lord. It's what we call physical death. It's not the end. I hope, I hope we're clear on that. I believe you are. This is a well-taught congregation. But that's not the end. Exciting though that will be, and I'm probably closer to it than most, indeed all of you, but exciting though that will be, there's a great and glorious day of the Lord to come when 
we will, those happy spirits who are in the presence of God will be given bodies like unto Christ's glorious body. We don't have some, you know, ethereal, vague existence in the future. We believe in the bodily resurrection. Not reincarnation, but body resurrection. Child of God, you have an exciting future. To be with Christ to know him, to be sure that our spirits on physical death will go to be with him, but to know that even after that, a more exciting prospect, we're going to have a new body like his glorious body, and we're going to live a tangible existence for all eternity in the new heaven and the new earth that God will make. Wow! Shouldn't we be the most hopeful, joyful folk looking to the future with a confidence that really is unbreakable. Let's face the world with a, a smile. Let folk know. You know, the, I know that the, the Bible says, not the Bible, the chorus says, with Christ in the vessel we can smile at the storm. I don't see enough smiling Christians. I don't. We should be of all people the most joyful. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. We're more than conquerors. We should live accordingly. And I share Suzanne's comment. I want to see this land transformed with the wonderful truths of the gospel, the Spirit of God coming into the lives of many people, people turning to Jesus. I want to see it happening. We've got to live in such a way that they know we believe this stuff. We really believe it. He's in our hearts. We can face life and death and all that has to come with a confidence that's entirely rooted in Jesus. The dying thief. Think about it. Think of the way he's dying. And yet, his whole future lit up. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. What a story. What a story. Now, I believe firmly that when one comes to saving faith in Christ, lives change. And that we should be building up a life that glorifies God. This man had no chance to do that. He didn't have an earthly future. He wasn't able to give evidence, not for very long, that the Spirit of God had come into his life and that he was transformed. But he was trusting Jesus. His confidence was in him. He was able to look. We do it by faith. He was able to do it literally. He was able to look at that cross and see the one that was dying there. But by faith, he recognized who he was and what he was. And that was enough for Jesus to say, you're mine, and this day you'll be in my kingdom. We'll be together. And I want to close now, but I want to ask you, has the transformation happened in your life? Has the transformation, has the tide turned? 
you're in good health. Your mental faculties are clear. This man was dying under excruciating agony, confused with wine mingled with gall, and yet he saw it. And he was transformed. Don't allow the truth that he saw. In God's name, don't allow yourself to miss it. Trust him. Go to live for him. One day you'll go to live with him. Do you know he'll never leave you? He'll never forsake you. What he says to you is, Take my hand and let's walk through this experience of life together. And then I'll take you home one day. Oh my, I find it exciting and the prospect even more exciting. And I hope you share that with me. May I pray with you? Oh God, take these stumbling words from this wonderful story and write them on all our hearts such that those of us who know and love you will love you even more and serve you even better. Those that have maybe grown cold, oh God, warm hearts this morning. And those who have never been to the foot of the cross and looked by faith at that central figure, <coughs> turn their hearts to you that they too might say, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So hear our prayer. In the holy name of the one who hung on that cross. Amen. God bless you.